Good morning, everyone, again. We're continuing our series in the book of Acts. We're moving along uh, through the book. It's sometimes long swatches of texts like last week, and we just kind of uh, went through and told the story a little bit. And sometimes, like today, we'll be uh, reading the story, and uh, you can then be following along in your Bibles at home or on the screen here. Today we're going to be looking at chapter 8 of the book of Acts. And um, if you had a chance to look at this chapter before today, or if you remember it, it's really the story of two men, Simon the sorcerer or the magician, and then the Ethiopian eunuch as they connect to Philip the evangelist. And so I want to go through these stories, and as I've been um, working on them and thinking about them this week, what has uh, been foremost in my mind is, is trying to a little bit place myself in the shoes of these two men. What kind of men were they? What were they like? What was going on inside of them in these stories, as much as we can tell that? And then how did the good news, what did the good news of Jesus do to them? How did it change them? So we're going to do a little deep dive into each of these two people this morning. So I invite you to open your Bible if you have one, or again, follow on the wall or on the screen. We're going to read the first 25 verses of the book of Acts to start off with. You remember last week we talked about the stoning of Stephen. That has just happened. Stephen has just fallen. Stephen has just died after being stoned. And then Acts 1 begins Saul, and we're going to come across Saul, of course, uh, very quickly, like next week, approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women. Saul was an equal opportunity persecutor, and he committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the disciples at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, I've had, of course, a lot more time this week than you have to to think about this man, Simon. But what was Simon's problem? What, What did he struggle with? And it's pretty clear that his problem was that he lusted after power. He was a magician. William Willimon says that magic may be defined as the attempt to control, to have power over, divine powers through the application of certain techniques and esoteric formula. Simon amazed the people of Samaria who said that he himself was somebody great. Now, can you imagine being in a village of five, 10,000 people, maybe more, and they're all saying that you're really pretty great? They paid attention to him, everyone from least to the greatest, and they said, this man is the power of God. So he was, this, he was this guy who was exercising power. And when he saw that Peter and John had caused the Holy Spirit to fall upon the people of Samaria, he wanted to give them money because he wanted, as he says, this power also. Willie James Jennings, from whom I'm getting a lot of the, the input for this uh, sermon series, says this, if we fault Simon for anything... It should be for his intoxication with an addiction to power. Attention begat power. As power yielded up greater amounts of attention, he who come after him will make the same mistake. What is power? Max Weber, a German sociologist, at the end of uh, the nineteenth, beginning of the, 20th, defined it this way: power is the ability to control others, events, or resources, to make happen what one wants to happen in spite of obstacles, resistance, or opposition. And Dr. Tuttner, who's a professor of, psychi- of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley says that power is how you alter the states of other people. It's continually fluctuating, and it's based in little actions. And Keldner speaks, and I found this very interesting, of what he calls the paradox of power. And I have a little one-and-a-half-minute video of him explaining this, and I want you to listen very carefully to what he says. And, and you know, when I teach this... um, 
it's such a fascinating moment. Um, and, and, you know, leaders immediately recognize this. And in fact, I think the power paradox is, it might be the central puzzle of human life, which is the following. As we've been discussing, we, we earn the respect of people. Um, you know, our teenagers at home, the people we work with, our, our critics, um, the members of our community, by doing the hard work that advances the welfare of many. And that's how we get power, right? Um, and that takes social intelligence. And it takes listening and empathy and, and really, you know, careful navigation of circumstances. And then here's the paradox, which is the feeling of power, right? Just suddenly when you feel, man, am I on top of my game, you know? What we know is you start feeling enthusiastic and empowered and hopeful and a little bit, you know, manic and arrogant and on top of the world. So you go to the dark side. And then the dark side comes in and you are vulnerable to all of the abuses of power that we see in every day in our newspapers and in our history books. See what Keldner is saying here? You start off power as a, as a good thing. You use it in order to find your place and to be of service to other people and, and to, to be a person that, that you are called to be. And then it very quickly and almost always changes into something where you begin to use and abuse other people. What I wanted to do this morning was, as thinking about this power, just think with you very briefly on how power or how the church has, through the centuries, used power. Because it struck me what Jenkins said, Simon mistakes God for power, and many who come after him will make the same mistake. There are people all over this world who live and breathe and envision Christian faith only in its utility, only how I can use it, and only through exchange. Those are all power words. Certainly, since the time of of Constantine, 400 AD, something like that, the church has exercised power. Political and economic power, for sure, especially in Europe, right up to the early Enlightenment and the Industrial Revelation. But not just political and economic power, the church has also exercised what sometimes is called the keys to the kingdom of heaven. I don't know if you've ever heard that expression. In other words, heaven or hell. The church is the one, and certainly before the Reformation, 500s, the Roman Catholic Church was the gateway, was the ark. It was only through the church that you could, quote, be saved. And then there was the Reformation in the the 1500s. And although a lot of good things came out of the Reformation, they never really escaped from this power thing. 
Which church is the true church? Was the big question. Because we're a true church, that means that we need to draw lines. There are people who are out, and there are people who are in. We fence the Lord's table. We do church discipline. If you don't, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, or believe what you're supposed to do, then we can put you out. And maybe to, to a little bit less extent, but probably practically not that much different, the clergy exercise great power over individual church members and over the church as a whole. There's power all through this, even in the Reformation churches. And what's fascinating is that today in our world, and I'm a little bit of a nerd, so I follow this, and this may be just totally, totally out of any of your vision, so just bear with me here for a little bit. There's a lot of research, particularly historical research going on, into how the evangelical church of our time, and the think of the last 70 years, particularly in America, has used and misused power. There are two books, at least two, there are more, but there are at least two that speak of this quite clearly. The first one is by Kristen Cobes Dumay, who is a teacher of history, a professor of history at a school that a lot of you will know, Calvin University in Grand Rapids. And just a year ago, she put out a book called Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. And her description of this book is this. The book traces how a militant ideal of white Christian manhood came to pervade evangelical popular culture in America. For the last 75 years, heroic ideals inspired by mythical warriors, soldiers, and cowboys many of them portrayed on screen by men like John Wayne and Mel Gibson in the movie Braveheart, transformed the faith itself, replacing core biblical teachings such as loving one's neighbor and one's enemies with a militant battle cry. I don't know if this is a shocking thing for you to hear. There's this militant masculinity. Biblical patriarchy. Family values, which feature the submission of women, particularly to their husbands, but in some cases, even to the general society. Which leads to a culture of abuse, especially sexual abuse. And if you paid any attention to the news in the last couple of years, you're aware of this, not just in the general society, but in the church. There's a focus on male authority. There's a focus on militarism, glorifying the use of force. And there's maneuvering to acquire political power. So the church has been very involved and in my humble opinion, perhaps even been involved in starting 
the culture wars. What are the culture wars? We need to be afraid of all kinds of things. And when we're afraid of things, and when we see our culture as a threat, we need to defend. And how do we do that? By exercising our power. Political, theological, personal, institutional. Every way we can, we use power. This is extremely damaging. It's damaging to individuals. It's damaging to the church. And it's damaging to our witness. And I find it personally shocking and painful. As you all know, I haven't lived most of my adult life in the United States. Came back about nine years ago. And this is what I found myself in, this culture. So there's Simon who's wanting power. There's the power struggles that we each as individuals have. And then there's this power struggle that's going on right now in our society. Partially, certainly, fueled by the white evangelical church. And Peter says to Simon... May your silver perish with you. What is silver? Power. Because you thought you could obtain what? The gift of God with money. The salvation, Simon, that you are grasping for, the freedom that you want, is actually a gift. It comes to you from God. It's not something you exercise. It's not power. It's a gift. This is a very subtle thing. Most of you know that I volunteer for an organization that uh, works with children in the in the in the youth system, the children and youth uh, system of the United States foster system here in Delaware County and Chester County. And I can tell you, there's a tremendous amount of power in that job. As I walk into homes, and I see parents, and I see kids, and I can have an opinion, and my job is to communicate to the judge in the court. And that's a power that almost nobody else in this scenario has. And it can be intoxicating to have that power. And it is literally a struggle to walk into a home and to walk into a situation and say, I'm not here to exercise power. I'm here to use the gift of God to be fruitful and to help. In that situation, you see the difference? You see how close this line is? That's why I found Simon so helpful. He lays out again before me, you can be intoxicated with power. But the way to get out of that as an individual and as an organization, as a church, 
say, no, it's not about power. It's about God giving me a gift that I then turn into serving others. Now let's go on to the Ethiopian eunuch. We're getting short on time here. Acts chapter 8, verse 28, 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I asked you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found him at Azotus. And as he passed, found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. The Ethiopian eunuch, and just in case you're not aware of what this term means, a eunuch is someone who, who in this case, mostly at a very young age as a young boy, had his testicles cut off, which means that he never went into puberty and became, in that sense, a man. And that was done usually in the courts of of kings and of, of monarchs in order to ensure that they could trust this man not to uh, impregnate any of the women of the harem and not so to to pass his seed on and mix it in with with that of the royal family. That was the idea behind this, done in many of 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 the ancient cultures. But this Ethiopian eunuch did have some power. He served the royalty. He was trusted. He was a steward of large land holdings, probably treasurers and properties. He possibly was wealthy. Another biblical example you might think is Joseph, who was the steward of the king Pharaoh back in Egypt, of, of, of the Pharaoh back in Egypt, and how wealthy and powerful he was. That's maybe the image that you should have. So this Ethiopian was not without power, but he was a a vulnerable, in some senses, a broken man, especially as a God-fearer, a non-Jew, going to Jerusalem to worship there. Because, and it's 
We don't know exactly how this all worked, but it was most likely that foreigner, but also as a eunuch, as one who was, who was maimed, that he was not allowed to enter the temple or that he was restricted in some way in his worship. Because of his blackness, because of his sexuality, because of his foreign origin, because he wasn't fully taught in the Jewish scriptures or, or culture or tradition. He was an outsider. Jenkins says, the Ethiopian eunuch is the outer boundary of the possibility of Jewish existence. And then Jenkins says this also, he had a, de- he had a destiny, but not an identity. See the difference? He had a destiny. He had things he was doing. He was, he was somebody in terms of his job. But in terms of who he was as a person, deep down inside, he was broken. And he's reading this passage from Isaiah 53. Listen to it again through the ears of this Ethiopian eunuch. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. Can you imagine the Ethiopian eunuch reading this and thinking back to that moment when he was a boy and they grabbed him? And they took the knife. And he couldn't say a word. Like a lamb before his shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Can you imagine him thinking of that day? Speaking of trauma. In his humiliation, can you imagine the humiliation of that day? And the humiliation of never being able to fall in love with a woman and to procreate, which was the greatest good in the culture of the time. In his humiliation, justice was denied from him. Who can describe his generation? There are no words for how awful this is. For his life, listen to this, his life is taken away from the earth. He's a dead man. The Ethiopian identifies deeply with this writing. It cuts him to the heart. He says, I I know this, I know this, I, I know what this is. I know what this is like. This man... Maybe he's talking about himself. Maybe he's talking about someone else. But he's certainly talking about me, this broken man. And Philip tells him the good news of Jesus. We're going to get a little in a little second to more about what that is. And the eunuch finds out to his great joy, and the story in Acts concludes by saying he went away rejoicing, that there is nothing to prevent him from joining the community of Jesus' followers. He went to Jerusalem to go to the temple, and he was hindered. Philip says, no, in the community of Jesus' followers, your blackness doesn't stand in your way. Your sexual woundedness does not stand in your way. Your foreign origin does not stand in your way. Your lack of religious knowledge or experience doesn't stand in your way. 
Your rejection by the Jewish, re Jewish religious leaders and community does not stand in your way. There's nothing that stands in your way of coming and becoming part of this community and finding your identity there as a gift from God. Most commentators are relatively sure that this eunuch was familiar with probably a lot of Isaiah, not just this little chapter. And also because in those days you read from a scroll, you had a lot more in front of you than we might have on a little page. So most commentators will suggest that the Ethiopian eunuch was familiar with the passage a little further on in Isaiah, Isaiah 56. Let's put it up on the screen, or if you have a Bible, you can open to it. It's almost impossible to believe that he didn't know this passage. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Don't say that anymore. Even though you're a foreigner, you belong. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. I can't produce any seed. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name. Better than sons and daughters. There's almost nothing better than sons and daughters, right? I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be what cut off. See all these images coming up in his mind? All this stuff that, that's been taken away from him on that day with that knife. And to the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for who? For all peoples. The Lord God who gathers who? The outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. This is the gift of God that Peter was talking to Simon about. Right? For those of us that are power abusers, and I include myself in that category, oftentimes not realizing it because I'm privileged. But I am tempted to and often do abuse power. It's just, it's just, it just happens. But I'm also broken and wounded. Not because someone took a knife one day back when I was a child. But for other reasons. Abuse of some kind. Mistreatment of some kind. Being a victim of whatever. That leads to this deep brokenness. 
and struggle with identity. Who am I really? And do I have any right to be here? Do I have any voice? Is there anyone who really fundamentally cares for me? And Philip comes to Simon and he comes to the Ethiopian eunuch and he says, yes, there is. It's God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So whoever believes in him will not perish, will not be a dry branch, will not disappear from the pages of history, but will have eternal life. And then note that that life that's offered is not the life of an individual. It's life in community, right? This passage in Isaiah is just filled with community. It's filled with God bringing people together so that we're never going through life alone. We're never the outcast. We're always part of God's community. Throwing a lot of stuff at you this morning. Kind of like a fire hose, I think. I really would encourage you to read these passages again and, and try, to, try to think about them, these two stories, from the perspective of these two people, Simon and the Ethiopian eunuch, whose name we don't know. And to think about how you use and abuse power in your own life, because all of us do it. And how you can understand that it's the gift of God that will change that abusive power into service. Then to think about your own woundedness, because all of us are wounded. And how it is that God gives you a name, and he gives you sons and daughters, and he gives you a community, and he gives you an identity. And he will never leave you or forsake you, however dark the valley is. Amen.